Hey, welcome everybody. It's time once again for another episode of Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality today with a dash of recovery thrown in along the way. So if you've ever had questions about your church, maybe become a bit jaded in your attitudes towards religion and overall, hey, you've come to the right place. Because today our show is entitled, Sinful Saints Revealed, proving once again that a church hurts, don't shy away from controversy. Our host, well, he's a former pastor, he's a teacher, planted a few churches along the way, and now, well, he likes to think of himself as just an aging curmudgeon who never quits asking the one question, maybe the only question on everybody's mind these days. Why? Why not bring him in, Dr. John Bash? Thank you, Paul. Sinful Saints Revealed. How's that for the title of our show today? It sounds like a bad headline from a trashy newspaper found in the checkout line at a second-rate grocery store. Sinful Saints Revealed. Really? Do you know that the word saint means many different things depending on who you are talking to? Roman Catholic and Orthodox traditions have a formal understanding of saints, which includes canonizations established first in the 10th century. It may surprise many that sinlessness is not a requirement for sainthood in any tradition, and I bet the saints are glad for that one. With the advent of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the whole notion of saints was turned on its head. Anyone who is truly a Christian is considered a saint. If this sounds confusing, it really doesn't have to be. In his first letter, the Apostle Peter tells us, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Sing praises, ode to the Lord, O you saints, and give thanks to his holy name, Psalm 34. To avoid digressing down these ages-old theological side roads, we can all admit that no matter what words are used to describe Christians or Christian leaders or clergy or other public figures in Christendom, we can all have a tendency to fall into hero worship or to villainize them. Both lack the honesty characterized in biblical revelation where saints are sinners and both sides are glaringly revealed. Today, we'll look at a couple of people who might be considered in the informal subjective lineup of Protestant fathers. It's easy to make them bigger than life, forget their frailties, and feel insignificant by comparison. But their stories are excellent and worthy of knowing to motivate us to be encouraged by the saints and reminded that they need a savior too. Our storyteller today is one of my favorites from the other side of the pond. Welcome back to Church Hurts and Englishman, Londoner, pastor, scholar, and tour guide from heaven, Ben Virgo. Hey, Jack, it's fantastic to be with you again. Ben, I... uh... Uh, I know that many Americans are very obsessed with your English royalty that uh, we rebelled against a few hundred years ago. But, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know that there was a time in England that they didn't have a king. 
Can we start there? Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, the most recent time we didn't have a king was an extraordinary season of about five years when we were ruled by someone who was closer to the idea of what a king should be than any of our recent kings. Uh, for five years in the 1650s, we were ruled by a protector. This is a man who was a military leader. He had begun as a farmer, potentially had some time uh, in the law. We're not absolutely certain of that because the records don't all justify it. There aren't that many wait, records no, when, Wait, when, when was this again? Get, let me get this in my mind. When? 1653 to 1658. Okay, so that, that was years. so a hundred years. Wait, you said sixteen. So that's over a hundred years before we became a nation. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. And go ahead. It's very interesting for listeners from the United States to consider this because imagine that the people who went to the U.S. will have known there was a time when this kind of revolutionary thing happened. It was not such a crazy thing to imagine that there could be a, a new style of leadership, a new style of government. This fellow, you see, he had been a farmer. He had become potentially, we're not certain, a lawyer of some sort. He was a member of parliament. And then he became uh, a, an officer in the army of the nation. Uh, he was a cavalry uh, uh, officer in charge of a, 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 a platoon or a, 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 section of cavalry and he, uh, he there was a time when the nation the people of the nation were attacked by the royal forces the king at that time was charles the first and charles the first was a kind of a nice guy but he was not brilliant he was not a wise politician and when he didn't get his way believing that he had the been given the god-given rule as king, he attacked his own people. He attacked and told them, and intended to force them into submission. And the, the a new army was formed by parliament, uh, the new model army, as it was known. And uh, this fellow about whom we're talking was one of the officers in that army. So as we, I kind of translate this, is because it really sounds silly. I mean, if we're hearing what you're saying, it's like mean, a Western. It would, kind of, it would be, yeah. I mean, it would be like the president. You know, people were saying um, with our election issues these days that somehow Donald Trump is not going to peacefully leave office or something like that. Like, really imagining he's the head of the military. It would be like if the president kind of goes to the military generals and says, uh, let's go out and impose what we want to have happen to the people, even though the Congress says no. Well, that's a very, yeah, it's a very right? good analogy. Yeah, it's like that. Okay. Yeah. So right, this so guy. The Congress gets its own army. Yeah. This is what right. happens. And the guy and you're talking would, about, so he's the head of Congress's army instead of the, the king's army, right? Yeah. Well, actually, oh. as it happens, and this is the part where it really catches the imagination. You see, he doesn't begin in charge of the army. He begins as just a cavalry officer. The guy in charge of the army is Fairfax. But this particular fellow, he's just a, a young officer but he's a good officer. He's strong, he's brave, and he's effective. He gets his men working together as a team and he stands out, he becomes conspicuous, he wins victories and he does well. Quickly is promoted, quickly is promoted, and is promoted, and is promoted. And when he is promoted into more and more senior uh, positions, he proves himself worthy of each position and he becomes popular among the men and so on. Uh, he would, uh, 
he would similar to how um, Patton, of course, was famous for walking among the men. He would know the men, and he would they he would share their hardships and so on. Okay, now uh, let me just ask you this though, because England get always gets confusing when you start when you get church <laughs> into it, right? And this is oh, church hurts yeah. and so. <laughs> The church have anything to do with it? So, like uh, the king was was the church involved at all with what the king thought versus what Parliament thought? Uh, it's always a, it's troublesome, isn't it? As soon as you involve the question of God in uh, in in the political arena, you find what Macaulay said, where Lord Macaulay said that uh, the power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we find mm. here's Charles saying, "I'm king," and instead of thinking. Uh, now, what does God like? What is he like? He's a servant. He, 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 his son comes and serves. He gives his life. He's, a, he, he's meek. He's lowly of heart. Instead of that, King Charles says, I'm in charge. Do what I say. And uh, so we see he, uh, he takes uh, the, the, a royal prerogative unto himself, but with that does not serve, but attacks. So, yeah, there is a, a flavor of of uh, christianity but it is a mess meanwhile this fellow about whom we're talking was he catholic or protestant at that time he was protestant okay. um but uh, that's uh, the, the reformation of course has only happened in the last hundred years as well in this country we have uh, the the, uh, the nation's um, uh, national church the church of england the anglican church and so this uh, this fellow about whom we're talking, however, he is convinced of the gospel. He is uh, uh, he's not uh, a, a Catholic. He is someone who is uh, a believer firmly in what the Bible teaches about a, a suffering servant who comes to save his enemies. And so, but no, so now we got at least at least it's not a, a technically religious war, but we have this yeah, young well, guy who's a cavalry officer who's mm. in the army opposing the king, and mm. what happens? Now, what happens is he's such an effective uh, general, and his course his cause is perceived to be just that the people flock to him, and in a number of uh, battles. Uh, the Cavaliers, which is the king's forces, are defeated by this man. And uh, in due course, uh, this man who is in charge of the roundheads defeats the king. And King Charles I is captured and is imprisoned. Uh, at one point, he escapes only to be captured again. And then we have this terrifying, well, we have this somber and awesome moment where he is brought out in front of the people in the middle of Westminster, a scaffolding is built and huge crowds witness the king bravely be, being taken uh, out in front of the, uh, the masses, uh, wearing an extra shirt because he says, I don't want to be trembling because of cold. I don't want people to think I'm afraid. And he bows and the uh, axe is raised. When it drops, they say, Normally, there would be great cheers when a traitor or a, a, a criminal was executed. But instead, there was a deathly silence. Uh, Antonia Fraser, in her biography, says that uh, you can argue that the death of Charles was inevitable. You can even argue that it was necessary, but you just can't argue that it was right. So Charles, uh, he's dead. And then this fellow, who at that time was now the senior man, in Parliament and in the military became 
Lord Protector. Uh, he had proved himself by his character, by his effectiveness, and by his attitude as, in a sense, the best king we would have had. Normally, a king is just the descendant of the last king, and they may be a fool, as you see in many of the stories of, uh, of kings. You look at stories of Nero and Caligula and, and many of the heroes of history. They've been appalling kings. But this is a man who had character, and he ruled so, with, so um, yeah, yeah. there's a sense that if we tell the part of the story that the, so you have the king's head cut off is the scenario mm. that we have. Parliament basically now has gotten their way. They have to figure out who the ruler is going to be. And there was a, po a real popular uprising basically to say, let's make this guy king. Right. Yeah. Mm. And and he said no in a George Washington like moment. 150 years before George Washington. That's a right? very, as a very good uh, comparison to make, because of course Washington doesn't just do what he does in a vacuum. He remembers a man of character beforehand who decided. Who, so who is this guy? Now the name of the man is uh, Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell still is remembered by a statue that stands proudly in front of Parliament, where he he stands gruff and strong. In his right hand, well, by his right hand is his sword, and in his left hand is a Bible. Uh, I would like to just mention one. Can I mention one other little vignette, little sure. story of this man? Sure. Here's a fellow who he's gone down in history as a uh, as a conflicted person. For example, there were people who were civilians who were killed by his army, and he has always been considered to have been. Uh, uh, a similar way to how when Kennedy fought back at the Bay of Pigs, there were some who said, Kennedy, you could have got us all killed. Whereas others said, no, this was leadership. And in, in, in a similar way, people say uh, of Cromwell that he, he should be held responsible for the deaths of innocent people. Uh, but uh, although he's a very conflicted fellow, he, or a conflicted figure of history, one thing which is rarely told is although he was a Puritan, People who knew him, even people who hated him, said there was nothing like the joy in anyone else's court that there was in Cromwell's court. The royal physician, who had been the doctor of uh, Charles I and later was the doctor again of Charles II, hated Cromwell. But he was around the court under both the Charleses and under Cromwell, and he said the court was full of love, joy, family and and music and pleasure under Cromwell, whereas under the Charleses, it was full of bitterness and intrigue and uncertainty. And did he now, live in a palace? Did he live in a palace like the king? Yeah, he did. He lived in a palace and uh, uh, similar to Sosthenes in the whole uh, the story of uh, in, in the Greeks, we have this issue where if you're going to make someone a king, he can't live in a hut. He's got to have some kind of, uh, he's got to have some kind of respect. And so he did live in a palace, but he lived in a palace with his family around him. And he always was concerned for his children. They would grow up well. And he loved his wife. And in many ways, he fulfilled the role of a king that you would find in a fairy tale in his concern for these things. Unlike um, if you, uh, you guys are, any of you guys watching The Crown and you see, oh, it's like these people, they, they live in these huge palaces, but their lives are a mess. Right. Uh, Cromwell fulfilled the uh, thing in an unusual way. 
You know, it was interesting to me, uh, Ben, a few years ago when we uh, toured around London together. Um, I was, of course, very interested in Cromwell because I find him to be such an amazing um, person in history to actually have ruled the nation, not to be a king, uh, the whole controversy of how the nation was going to be uh, interact with um, as the Church of England and the Puritans, all that stuff messed up. But because he never was a king, it's hard to find sites to actually go see about Cromwell. Had he become a king, of course, there would have been places all over the nation where for Cromwell, yes. you're, you're lucky to find anything about Cromwell, aren't you? Well, it's a str- I mean, he was buried when he died. He's buried in Westminster Abbey. But then when the nation brought Charles II back, who wait, was a wait, dirty... Wait, wait, this is, this is too good because we got, we got the part of the story where you got Charles I head cut off and a lot of people are holding Cromwell responsible for that, right? Oh, yeah. So yeah, then when they get the next king, go yeah. you finish this, this is just an amazing story. Oh, it's a mess, isn't it? They go bring ahead. back Charles II. Charles II is a dirty old guy. You know, he's just a profligate kind of playboy guy. He's, uh, they, and he, he'd been in exile in France. He'd been hiding out. They bring him back and say, be our king. You know, he has no character. He just has the, the right uh, genes and so on. Bring him back. And they then, they dig up Cromwell's body from Westminster Abbey and they chop its head off uh, and make a real mess of this body. Uh, and uh, and uh, it takes a number of swipes to chop its head off. And the body is displayed on a, a London Bridge, I believe it is. And the head at one point f- falls off uh, in the British weather and is taken in a box. <laughs> wait, wait, enough. the head falls off a stake because it's displayed for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gonna like, just many, like uh, nine months or more. Oh, than that, I, right. I think it would probably yeah, at least. And, and and but you you know you can imagine Jack. It won't have been the only one. I mean, uh, the, the way people used to live, it was pretty gross. You probably there were probably other bod- bodies. If you see old etchings of London Bridge, you see heads on spikes. You yes. know, so there's his head on a spike. It finally falls off. They put it in a yeah. box, and where did they take it? And they get for some, somehow it ends up at Sydney Sydney Sussex College in uh, Cambridge, and it is buried there somewhere. And <laughs> you wouldn't believe this: only one person knows it. Only one person knows where it's the person who runs the college, Sydney Sussex College. And when they move from <laughs> from when the new one comes in, the uh, the outgoing. Uh, dean of the college tells the new one where the head is it's one of those extraordinary foibles of british history and it's really true to this it's true to this day right only one person knows where cromwell's head is you'd think (laughs) you'd think someone would say i I think we had enough of that whole thing but they still do it it's amazing it's crazy anyway it's what a tale because depending on what kind of household if you grew up in an irish catholic household um, in the United States that talked about history. Um, Cromwell would still be viewed as an ex- extreme villain. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, but the man did, um, he was a mixture, right? He was oh, yeah. just a mixture. Yeah, um, if you, it's very similar. So you, re, you read a Bible, there's only one guy who comes out sinless. You know, all the heroes you read about, the great heroes like David. Oh, what's this horrifying sin in the middle of your life? Oh, Paul, the the disciples, all of them. You think these guys are making mistakes everywhere, let alone mistakes. They're full on evil, you know, and uh, it's very similar. You read this guy's life. And I tell you what, I find some encouragement in there. 
Well, let's let's uh, short change since uh, we got on to a few more details, but let's jump into another one that's more yeah. familiar to American listeners here. Uh, another character who was certainly us. Uh, who are we jumping into next? Well, this is a guy 100 years later. He's born 104 years later. Uh, he's an uh, Oxford academic. I think he was the 15th of 18 children. Uh, he was five wow. foot three, little slight little guy. And he was a guy who uh, who can c- comfortably be described as a world changer. His name was John Wesley. Now, John Wesley was a fellow who uh, went up to Oxford, Lincoln College, Oxford, with the intention of... Uh, trying to fix what's going on in the world. And he and uh, some of his friends said, we're going to put together a society. We're going to get together. We're going to promise to each other that we will hold to discipline. And we will call on God to bring change and to uh, bring uh, us through to a position of responsibility to change this nation. And they went and prayed together daily. They opened the Bible to each other daily. They would fast and they would. These are just students at Oxford, right? Yeah. A bunch of students. They became so famous for their aesthetic lifestyle. They would aesthetic, aesthetic, aesthetic Aesthetic lifestyle. They would, uh, they would remove themselves from, from all things which could be tainted with sin. They became so notorious that they got the nickname, the Holy club, the Holy club. But uh, John Wesley himself then decided, I am going to leave Oxford. I'm going to go to America and I will become a missionary. And he comes over to Savannah, Georgia, and to his great shock, finds that uh, he's not only not changing anything, but his congregation can't stand his horrible message because all the time he's preaching, try harder, try harder, try harder try harder and then sure enough not only are they all finding i'm not trying hard enough i'm not trying hard enough but he himself is finding i'm not trying hard enough and he would try to make himself (laughs) try harder by putting burdens on them i'm sure each of us knows that i listened to a podcast of a guy the other day saying this is how i lost weight i set up a podcast saying this is how you lose weight and then the burden on me to try to lose weight was so strong (laughs) this guy um this John Wesley, he was forced try so basically, hard. He was a missionary to the United States. From, so he's coming over on the ship, kind of the same way, you know, we picture in those days, just the wooden boat travel coming over yep. here. And he's yep. preaching just purity, just be better. That's right. That's what right. Happened? Well put. And nobody really wanted to hear him. He was not a success. Of course, we know the name Wesley because it's Methodism here in the U.S. Yep. So what happened in this failing self-flagellation? Yeah, very good. Well put. Well, he came back to England, a uh, a disappointed, disillusioned ex-missionary. He had put everyone off around him. And he writes in his journals, uh, 24th of May, 1738, he says he went to Evensong at St. Paul's Cathedral, where you and I met. And uh, he, he listened to the singing there. And then he says, uh, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, which is a few hundred meters up the road from St. Paul's Cathedral. He says, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. So he's literally gone into a meeting room where there's a group of people and someone is literally reading out Martin Luther's writings. And he says, about quarter to nine, 
while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was taken, uh, assurance was given me that he'd taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. You see, until now he had thought, I must fulfill the law, I must obey the law, I must keep the law. And then he understood, no, 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 no. Jesus did it. And he took the punishment for me. And that changed everything. He came so out of it. In a sense, Ben, let me just stop you. It, what you're describing Wesley going through, isn't that what, what you find in a whole, I mean, I find it like in almost everybody, when you get into spiritual issues, if you really get honest and reflective, that sense of I have not done enough and I am not good enough is really common. Oh. I mean, maybe I just hang out with good people or something, but people I know um, in general, they just like, you know, that whole spirituality thing. I'm not a good enough mom. I'm not a good enough uh, husband. I'm not a good enough child. I'm not a good enough worker. Mm. So what Wesley was feeling is the same thing I think people are still feeling. Oh, so true. In fact, I put it put it the other way around, Jack. The people who don't feel like that are pretty horrible people, you know, the ones who just shoot everyone else down. Uh, but Jack, uh, John Wesley, he was one of those guys. He started out, he was a pretty prickly guy. Is that an American term, prickly? Yeah, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So he, he sure. was a prickly, difficult guy because he's right and everyone else is wrong. And then he goes into that meeting room completely uh, unwillingly and hears Luther say, no, 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 no. It, it, it wasn't you who was righteous, it's Christ. And he gives righteousness. He did the work such that you can now stand in the presence of God, perfectly righteous, only clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He says, I, my heart was strangely warmed. And the story that goes on in the middle of a nation that has the Church of England, you know, synonymous thing, uh, with a church and a country. And so he tried to preach this message there, right? Oh, my word, yeah. Well, th that's exactly right. The church are the people who come out against him because they're used to behave, just behave, you know? I, I think if you've ever been to a church where someone's just preaching, try your hardest, try your hardest, you think, why would I bother to come back here? I know I should try my hardest, and I, and I don't. That's the problem, you see? And Wesley... He came out from hearing, oh, Jesus did it. Jesus did it. You get saved by faith. And he started to preach that. And what happened was he, he the churches started to close their doors. One of the first times he started to preach it, he was actually in a church uh, building in Lincoln. And uh, the, 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 the vicar said, no, you cannot preach here. So he said, I remembered my father was buried outside in the churchyard. So he went outside and stood on his father's tomb and started to preach. Because he said, I know, I own this bit, so I can preach here. <laughs> and the people came to listen to him there. He preached 40,000 times, they say, approximately 40,000 times. And interestingly enough, he went up and down the nation, and uh, you know, you'll, you'll meet people all over the country who'll say, oh, yeah, he preached in my town. You'll preach in my town. Oh, yeah, I'll say, what happened? And they say, oh, yeah, they, they stoned him, and yeah. so on. Yeah. At this place, they threw a dead cat at him. But if you read the history books, they say, at the time he died in 1793, well, uh, no, 1791, the following year, the French had a revolution. 
and the poor rose up and slaughtered the rich. 40,000 were killed. And uh, secular non-Christian historians say the reason we didn't have a revolution in this country at that time is because John Wesley changed the nation. The poor were given hope. Well, and uh, we could go on, but Ben, just tell me one more thing just for fun, because Wesley is such a, John Wesley, such a legend, his brother, Charles, and, um, and they just, um, the impact on America was just huge. It swept, they swept through the country and built churches everywhere. So you think this guy's just amazing, all these hymns, but get, you know, instead of being the ideal sinless perfect now he has the gospel and now he's the preacher also had a wife chasing him around with a rolling pin right and what a mess what a mess oh so tra- i mean the sad thing is his, his mother susanna had 18 children one of his children had a happy marriage and that was charles I mean, it was a real mess. Uh, talk about saints and sinners. I mean, uh, th- th- his life is, uh, it-, it-, it has that uh, strange echo of beauty and also uh, familiar disappointments uh, because, you know, if the church comes out against him. Uh, he, uh, he's always surrounded by controversy, people attacking him. And then he at last finds someone to marry. She was a widower. Uh, sorry, she was a widow. And, uh, and she marries the, she marries Wesley. And, and then uh, all his friends were saying, don't do it. Don't marry this woman. She was a bitter, bitter woman. And sure enough, people, someone witnessed uh, coming into his home and seeing um, Wesley being dragged around by his hair. Uh, it was, uh, she would accuse him of adultery and all kinds of things, which he was patently un- <laughs> not Sinful doing. Sinful saints revealed. You know, Sinful I got to wrap up, but Ben, we're going to do this some more. Uh, let me just say this before we go. Quote, thus only those sinners belong in the kingdom of Christ who recognize their sin, feel it, and then catch hold of the word of Christ spoken here. I do not condemn you. These people constitute the membership of Christ's kingdom. He admits no saint. He blows them all away. He expels from the church all who lay claim to holiness. If sinners enter... They do not remain sinners. He spreads his cloak over their sins and says, if you've sinned, I remit your sins and cover them. This is Martin Luther on saints and sinners talking about the woman caught in adultery. One of the primary reasons for Church Hurts Anne comes down to our fundamental struggle, matching expectations with reality. No matter how much experience tells us that people are a mixed bag, good and bad, charming and deceiving, sinful and saints, we want the story to be different. We want our heroes to be perfect. We want our pastors to be sinless, our parents flawless. If nothing else, we'd adjust our memories and history to be that way. That's just not healthy. Perhaps today we can do better by finding forgiveness, not just for ourselves, but for others. We can do history better when we enter into the process, knowing ahead of time what we will get. Sinful people trying to address real-world issues, sometimes getting it right and sometimes messing up in terrible ways. So today, I'm going to choose to look at church as the collection of people who choose to follow Jesus, find forgiveness in his cross, pick up their own cross, and follow him. The mixture of these sinner saints or more accurately, these saint sinners 
will be a wonderful, confusing mess we all call church. So saints, I'm going to be thankful for this dynamic because if it were otherwise just a bunch of perfect people, I sure wouldn't be one of them. And I'm even more sure you wouldn't be. <laughs> it's worth a thought for Church Hurts and This is John Bash. Go and enjoy God today. Well, that was worth a thought for sure. And brings us to the end of this edition of Church Hurts and. Next week, it's rumored we'll be walking on the edge of controversy, stirring the pot of denial, and finding movement of the divine. Our host, Dr. John Bash, is the shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. Come visit us at churchbirdsand.org. Tell us your story while you're there. Until then, remember, church hurts isn't the end of the story. Now go into the end and enjoy God today, won't you?